You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Hi, my name is Olivia, and I will be reading from Matthew 13, 31 to 35. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to pray as we dig into this together. God, our prayer is, as Jesus said earlier in this same chapter of Matthew's gospel, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see, that we would have hearts to receive what you would say to us today. That's not possible apart from you doing that work, God, and so we invite you here. And for me, God especially, I pray that you would allow that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world that's uh, getting louder and louder and louder, right? Amen. We live in a world that's more and more flashy every day. It's more and more temporary every day. What blew up yesterday and went viral on TikTok is going to be forgotten tomorrow. We can do all of our banking in cryptocurrency, right? And if any of this isn't enough for you, good news is you can get this fancy pair of ski goggles from Apple and you can pay $3,500 and have all of this right in front of you at all times, right? I thought that would be more funny than it, I guess, was. <laughs> Maybe you guys were like, hold on, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Why are we attracted to these sorts of things? Because we think that fast success proves that something is either important or real. And what Jesus is going to call into question for us today is, is that true? Is fast success a determiner over whether something is important or real? And you know, the sad reality is that Christians are so often caught up in the kingdom of this world, perhaps without even noticing it, that they, they actually present the kingdom of heaven as though it is like this, as though it is flashy, as though it is loud and temporary and forgettable and viral. It's kind of crazy, but it's not new. It's actually 
something that goes back at least to the first great awakening, the legacy of Christianity in America, and it's what we have now come to expect. One of the best examples, however, isn't from the first great awakening, it's from the second great awakening, which some of you guys know it took place in the 19th century primarily, and early on there, a guy named Charles Finney was one of the founders of, of this great awakening. Some consider him the first marketer of the gospel, and he studied human emotions in order to determine how he might learn to manipulate them. His idea was, well, if the methods lead to people praying the sinner's prayer, then all of it is worth it, right? And in fact, Finney was known for what he called his new methods, and, and he employed these at revivals, at, at you know, what you kind of classically think of as these revival meetings, tent meetings, altar calls, and all of these sorts of things. Julie Canlis, an author, says, by the way, she's a... She's related to the people who own Canlis over here in uh, Queen Anne. Pretty cool. Julie Canlis says this about him. She says, what was common about these revivals was the sensationalism of the preaching, the high emotionalism, and the centrality of what he called the anxious bench. Okay? The anxious bench was a literal bench that was placed right at the front of the revival hall, and, and there, those who were particularly worried about the status of their salvation were singled out to receive special attention from the revivalists. So if we had one right here, you guys would come up, and I would like point at you and, and, <laughs> and talk directly to you. That's what was going on. And, and, and this anxious bench was where, in the intensity of the public limelight, this person could give in to Jesus. Finney was obsessed with how to further tweak these means of evangelism to his desired ends. And and what he liked about this is that you could always measure success because you could do so by just simply counting the number of converts. Finney even said, it is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. In other words, God doesn't even need to get involved. It is a philosophical result of the right use of constituted means. In other words, it's all about the means leading to the right ends. So I'd like you to just picture yourself at one of these tent meetings in, say, 1825, right? I'm imagining it being really hot and muggy, something like a scene out of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? or something like that. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But you look around, everyone's crying, Everyone is posting emotional videos that are going viral on TikTok, except for at the revival meetings in Montana, of course, because they aren't allowed to. Anybody get that news? Okay, anyway. And and it was probably easy to get caught up in the whole emotional experience of it all. It It may have even felt like an authentic spiritual experience for many of those people, and, and I, I wasn't there, so and I'm not God, so I can't actually say one way or another whether those were authentic experiences or whether those were lasting experiences, but what I can say is that if you like that vibe, you will hate the kingdom of heaven. You just will. If you like flashy, if you like loud, if you like viral and temporary and forgettable, you will hate the kingdom of heaven. 
Because as Jesus teaches us in these parables today, the kingdom of heaven is small and hidden. At least it starts out that way. Kingdom of heaven takes time. The kingdom of heaven requires patience. It requires waiting on God to act. And by human standards, the kingdom of heaven, it's like watching paint dry. Or or to use the analogy that Jesus gave in the parable today, it's like watching dough rise. In one sense, it's actually kind of boring to watch. And yet, if you long for something that lasts, like a nourishing tree, if it like a healthy tree, I should say, if you want something that nourishes like a loaf of bread, it's going to take time. And, it, and if you're willing to do the hard work of trusting God when you can't see that immediate fruit right in front of you, then you will love Jesus' kingdom. See, the kingdom begins small, and it begins hidden, but we should expect it to grow big only grow slow. And as we get into our text for today, chapter 13, it's all about parables. And we've told you that a parable is a simple story that's used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. But we might ask ourselves or might ask the scripture, why is it that Jesus spoke in parables? And if you noticed at the end of the reading earlier, it actually gave us an answer as to why he spoke in parables. Verses 34 and 35 said, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So why is it that Jesus is teaching in parables? The first is to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Jesus in his life, in his teaching, in, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection, and his ascension, and his sending of the Spirit has fulfilled tons of Old Testament prophecies. This is just one of them, but he's to fulfill Old Testament prophecies, chosen to speak in parables. The second was to reveal what has been hidden. These, as we heard earlier in Matthew, in, uh, Matthew 13, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is revealing secrets about his kingdom. Things that we can't see without the eyes of faith. Things that we can't hear without the ears of faith. And so we need to keep this in mind as we digest what he's saying to us today. Jesus is revealing something that has been hidden It's going to make it a little bit hard for us to receive. And so I want you just to ask yourself as we get into these two parables today, what will I do with the parables? Will I hear? Will I see? Will I receive what he has to say? And the first parable, if I could summarize it, is saying that the kingdom begins small, but it grows Big Verse 31 and 32 said, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus, in many of his parables, uses phrases like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's, he's answering this unspoken question 
of, Jesus, what's it like when you rule the world? Jesus, what's it like when you're the king? And here he, he gives us an example of that, saying it's, it's like a mustard seed. And what's a mustard seed? Some of you guys love putting some of that, you know, that large whole grain mustard on your hot dog like I do. And so you're familiar with what a mustard seed kind of looks like. But for those of you who don't, here's a picture right there. That's a mustard seed. And that puts things into perspective just to give you a sense of how small this seed actually is. And Jesus says here, it's the smallest of all seeds. Now, some of you guys are, I don't know if anybody here is a botanist. Maybe not, uh, but maybe somebody is, and you know that this is not the smallest of all seeds in a scientific sense, but that's not Jesus' point. He's more or less trying to get at this hyperbolic way of saying, this is one of the smallest seeds in the world. He's trying to emphasize how small it is. But what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is like that? What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven starts out small? Well, unfortunately, Jesus doesn't explain the metaphors in this parable very explicitly like he did in the first two parables that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Those first two parables were really sweet because they were like training wheels. Jesus was like, you guys don't get what I'm talking about, do you? And he, and he kind of explained everything to the disciples very thoroughly. But now we have to begin to sort things out for ourselves. Unfortunately, we have the Spirit of God to help us to do that. And Jesus does clue us in a little bit here of what he means. He says that though it starts out small, when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So this term garden plants gives us a sense of uh, it being like a vegetable or a crop or an herb or something like that. And this, this term tree isn't Jesus going, a mustard plant is technically classified scientifically as a tree. Again, it's not a botany lesson, right? It's more to just speak to how big of a bush this thing is, how large it grows. These things can grow up to 12 feet tall, very, very tree-like, in fact, so big that birds can make their nests in its branches, Jesus said. And so what started out as this minuscule little thing, it, it grew to be substantial. What started out as nearly invisible, it becomes massive over time. And the same is true for when Jesus rules the world. When he is king, the ways he works can be very, very subtle. So subtle, in fact, that you might begin to think that he's not working at all. You might look at the world around you and think, Jesus, when are you going to start reigning? Jesus, when are you going to start working in my life in the ways that I've been waiting on you to do? Jesus, I don't see what you're doing. It's nowhere around me. But you know what? If you know what you're looking for, it becomes really clear that Jesus is changing people's lives. If you know what you're looking for, it becomes really clear that Jesus is changing the world and he is beginning to reign. Now, some of you here are disciples of Jesus. Others of you are kind of in a different category, maybe you're just kind of checking Jesus out. Whatever, wherever you're at in the spectrum, we're really glad that you're here with us. 
We're all in different places in our faith journey. In fact, what's interesting is that Jesus' audience, when he said these words, they were the same way. They had people who were present there, his disciples, who were convinced this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, we are going to worship him, we are going to follow him. But then we also had some people who were in that kind of just checking Jesus out category. And imagine what it might have been like to be in one of those groups that day, hearing what he had to say. If you're in that just checking Jesus out category, you're probably thinking, question, thinking in your mind anyway, things like, prove it, Jesus. Prove it. Prove that you're the Messiah. I want to be seeing big and flashy things. I want to see the evidence that you really are who you say you are. If you're truly the king of Israel, Jesus, you'll form an army. You'll incite a re- uh, an insurrection, not a resurrection. I was about to say resurrection. You'll cite an insurrection, Jesus, if you're really the king of Israel. You're going to rid us of these pagan oppressors, the Romans. They're, you're going to get them out of here. So that's what you're probably thinking if you're, if you're in the just checking Jesus out category. But if you're in the, in the other category, if you already believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you already uh, believe that he is the king of the world that is deserving of worship, you might also want to see big and flashy things. The Messiah's here, right? So rightly so. And even us today, we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And man, that is huge when that happens. That's big. In a, in a sinful and broken and fallen world, it's huge when Jesus' kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. When, when sinners repent and come to faith, it's huge when people change and become more like Jesus. But even after Jesus' resurrection, which was huge, and even right before he ascended into heaven, which is also huge, his disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't understand the meaning of this parable. In fact, they came to him in the beginning of the book of Acts. We see them coming to him and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, will you kick all those Romans out? Will you do what we've been waiting for you to do militaristically? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. All the way up to the last moment when Jesus was physically present on earth, they're wondering, when does the big stuff happen, Jesus? When does the flashy stuff come? They'd forgotten this parable. And yet this parable, it's pretty clear. Jesus says, don't expect the kingdom to spread quickly. The kingdom will begin small. It will grow like a mustard seed grows into a large bush slowly over time. And for some people, this can be a real downer. It's like, why, Jesus? Why don't you just do it right now? Why don't you just make this thing happen in my life right now? Why don't you just make this world look like it's going to when you renew it fully? Why don't you just do that right now? And yet, I think we all find encouragement here. Because what Jesus is telling us is that it will happen. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it will 
happen? Do you believe that the waiting is actually built into the designer's design? That this is just simply what his kingdom is like. It starts out small but it multiplies slowly over time into something so big that you can't even fathom how it came from something so insignificant. Things like a God who humbles himself and takes on human flesh grows up to become the savior of the world. Things like that. And that's the point of the parable. The kingdom may start out small, But don't assume that that means that it will remain small. Have patience. Hope in God. But don't get caught up in the way of the world and expect to kind of click your heels together and all of a sudden everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And yet also, don't expect anything less than a large, nourishing tree that shelters life and stands the test of time. Jesus is helping us to see the kingdom began small and hidden, but you need to expect it to grow big, and you need to expect it to grow slow. The second parable can be summarized by saying the kingdom begins hidden, but it grows slowly. We saw this in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now this three measures of flour, it's a lot of flour. Uh, One commentator estimates it to be around 40 liters of flour, which we're like, I don't get the metric system, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, We're talking about roughly enough bread for 100 people. So this lady seems like she's about to have a party, is what I'm getting. And it says that she hid the leaven in the flour, kind of a strange verb, don't you think? You ever hide (laughs) leavening agents in flour? That's not really the way that we think about it. And yet, Jesus is trying to illustrate the way that the kingdom is. And so he's, he's describing the way that bread rises, usually in a dark place. If any of you have ever made bread, it's usually covered with something like a kitchen towel, right? And I know some of you have made bread, some of you guys have made sourdough bread. You got anybody get into the sourdough movement? Oh, come on. Okay, a couple of you guys. Now, I, th- I think we can all acknowledge there were a lot of really awful things that happened during COVID. We can acknowledge the death, the illness, the, you know, all the mental health issues, not to mention the educational issues, the economic issues, the work issues. Uh, I mean, we could go on, right? There are many things we can say that were were bad and negative effects of, of that time. But for some people, and this might be you or somebody you know, some people, it actually uh, was a it was a good thing in some ways. People uh, were jolted awake. I guess I could describe it that way. People began to slow down because the world around them began to slow down. People all of a sudden began paying attention to their roommates or their family members. People started to actually take time to do things that they never ever would have before because they just now all of a sudden had it. And 
some of you started making sourdough bread, or maybe, maybe you know someone who started doing that, or you watch the YouTube videos and you're like, eh, I don't think so, never mind, I don't want to do that. Now, why is it that so many people got into making sourdough? It was because there was something valuable about the experience of preparing something that was nourishing, but that you can't enjoy until later. There was something valuable about feeding that starter every day like a little pet, right? <laughs> and, and this leaven that Jesus is talking about, it's a little bit like a sourdough starter. You know, you know some of you guys might want to make bread today. You go down to the store, you buy some yeast, you warm it up, boom, you got, you got some bread ready to be made. But you probably know at least a little bit about how this whole starter thing works on a scientific level. Maybe you guys have watched some of the YouTube videos that I have. I'm getting a sense that I might be the only one here, though. I don't know. In any case, you might, you might know scientifically that that fungus, you know, if I'm, if I'm even understanding this correctly, uh, it eats all these gluten, carbohydrates, and then it farts, and it makes the bread rise. It's this amazing kind of bizarre thing. And that's fascinating on a scientific level, but then think about what it must have been like for an ancient person. You put this starter in here, and mysteriously, it, it just grows. It's like an act of God. It's, it's like magic. I put the leaven in, and, and it transforms, right? The only trick is it takes time. You can't really tell much of a difference anyway immediately sometimes. But if you look under that towel the next morning, it, it's completely transformed into something new. And in the same way, we might look at Jesus' kingdom, might look at, at the state of the world, we might look at the state of the church, we might look at the state of our hearts, and we think nothing's going on until we begin to take the long view and we begin to recognize God hasn't abandoned us. God is at work. When we take the long view, we begin to operate on God's timing rather than our own. Because we got, we got to realize that human history is longer than our weekend, right? Human history is longer than our lifetime. In fact, Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Friends, God is eternal. He's infinite. And so God's timeline, it moves at a different pace from ours. And what we learn from the leaven is that just because something is hidden, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's absent, doesn't mean that God is absent, it doesn't mean that God is powerless. The kingdom began small, the kingdom began hidden, but you got to expect it to grow, and yet you got to expect it to grow slowly. And so this is all about having kingdom expectations. How, as I close, I want to just dig into that just a little bit deeper. How can we manage our expectations? Jesus said we should expect things to grow big, his kingdom to grow big, but, but we should also expect it to grow slow. And you might remember at the beginning of my message, if you haven't already forgotten or fallen asleep, uh, 
that I talked about this dude named Charles Finney, a guy who believed that he could make things happen as long as he employed the right methods. And Charles Finney may not have ever said it in these words, but he might have said something like, small and hidden is bad, and it can't be God's will to move slow, and clearly the kingdom of heaven is too inefficient. We've got to do something about it. We've got to get some new methods because God isn't working fast enough. And what I would like to argue is that that same set of expectations that same way of viewing God's kingdom, it's, it's baked into us as American evangelicals. That same kind of mindset. And, and the sad part is that it's not just the culture out there that's, that's forming us in this way to think in these ways. It's actually also the church. We're conditioned to chase after that next big thing. Chase after that next big movement. According to David Bebbington, there are four primary beliefs of evangelicalism, and I'll, I'll explain in just a minute why I'm sharing these with you. Four primary beliefs of evangelicalism. Some of you guys are new to us, and you're like, hold up, is this an evangelical church? <laughs> yes. Uh, the first one is biblicism. Full authority of the Bible is the sole and supreme rule of faith and practice. Great. Great. We're for it. Crucicentricism, that's a big word, <laughs> a focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Can we get an amen? Great, right? Conversionism, the necessity of new birth by the Holy Spirit. We can't just be a part of the general thing called being Christian. We need to actually be born again. Can we get an amen? amen. It's good. Activism, the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed in effort, that we shouldn't just be sitting on our hands, but we should be actively participating in the kingdom of God today as he is working. Can I get an amen? This is all good stuff, right? I would consider myself an evangelical, even though there's a lot of, you know, people getting... Uh, I didn't think about how I wanted to say this. I'm trying to be careful. <laughs> people aren't really excited about that label. Let's just put it that way, Okay. I would consider myself an evangelical. I recognize you might have some baggage around that term. You're very welcome here, even if you do. Functionally, though, we need you to know our church is evangelical, okay? And as evangelical Christians, these are some wonderful things that we have inherited, some wonderful gifts from our forebears, the, the Christians who've come before us. But you know what? Like all gifts, we're really good at twisting them. We can take something so good and twist it. And the one that I think applies to what we've been talking about today is this issue of activism. This issue of activism, it gets twisted up and we drift away from the kingdom vision that Jesus has given us in this parable, chasing after that next church camp experience as a teenager, chasing after that next mountaintop experience or revivalist moment or movement as the church, and you know what that has done to us as Christians? It's made us more confused. It's made us more fatigued. And honestly, I think it's distracted us from the slow, the small, the hidden things of God, which are usually found in really ordinary everyday kinds of experiences of just living with him. Just 
being with him, is that enough? Is it enough to just know God and to be with him in our ordinary, everyday lives when we go to work, when we go to school, where we live, where we work, where we learn, where we play? Is it enough? See, these kinds of things, these, these are boring by the standards of our present world. But when you start to get into the kingdom of heaven, you recognize every day and ordinary, it's electric. That's where the work of God happens. If you love the Lord, small is actually invigorating because you're slowly planting these seeds that you know are going to blossom into beautiful big trees. If you love the Lord, hidden is actually invigorating because you know that you're hiding yeast in this flower that will one day nourish souls. The pedestrian, pedestrian, (laughs) Presbyterian, there we go, (laughs) theologian, (laughs) he's kind of pedestrian too, ordinary every day, I guess we're on that. Uh, Theologian Michael Horton, he says this, my concern is that the activist impulse at the heart of evangelicalism, that's what we were just talking about, can put an enormous burden on people to do big things when what we need most right now is to do the ordinary things better. We can miss God in the daily stuff, looking for the extraordinary moment outside of his word and conversation with him in daily prayer and family worship, especially the public gathering of the saints each Lord's Day. If we were more serious about these ordinary means of grace, I'm convinced the church would have a much stronger witness in the world today. I got I got an amen that one. I think he's right. Now, before I wrap it up, I'm sure some of you at least have been have been thinking this counter argument because this is the counter argument I was having with Jesus all week long as I was wrestling through this text and you might say something like smaller ordinary stuff sounds great. But surely Jesus must have intended for all of that kind of thing to end when he sent the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, think about Pentecost. What an incredible day, right? 3,000 souls were saved in one day, explosive growth. And then we look throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and Paul gets converted in this miraculous way, and then he goes on all these amazing missionary journeys. It's huge, or, or even what about the book of Revelation and all the crazy, enormous stuff that happens there? And yes, there are a lot of extraordinary works of God in the New Testament. A lot of amazing things. And I get all of these kinds of questions because I wrestled through it. And what I had to come to the conclusion was, all of that is true but none of those are normative. When we consider today's parable, we have to conclude that, that the kingdom is normatively growing very, very slowly from small beginnings. God works in extraordinary ways at times for specific purposes, kind of like coming to earth in human flesh. It's extraordinary. through a virgin birth, and yet he goes on to live in relative obscurity for the next 30 years as a carpenter. Very ordinary. God works in extraordinary ways at times for specific purposes, like 
willingly sacrificing himself to die for your sins and for mine. And yet, after his tremendously powerful resurrection, he just wants to enjoy some broiled fish with his disciples and have some lunch. Very ordinary. God works in these extraordinary ways, like on Pentecost, when he has these cowardly, spineless disciples of Jesus turn into these bold preachers of the gospel, and all of these people come into the kingdom in one day, and yet those same men continue to be feeble, continue to be fallible men who are just like you and me, trying to figure out what it means to live every day becoming more like Jesus, very, very ordinary. And so what I want to leave you with is that God does work in extraordinary ways. And we should even expect him to, but we should not seek to manufacture those extraordinary ways. We can pray for it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a radical prayer. And we should definitely be open to God moving in ways that blows our expectations out of the water, yes, but we also have to recognize that is not always the case. And Jesus wants us to consider, how do we do, how do we, how do we live when he doesn't act in these quantifiably big ways? Do we believe he doesn't exist anymore? Do we believe that he's left us? See, when we catch Jesus' kingdom vision, there's this, this quiet contentment with however God is moving in whatever he's doing in that time. There's a deep desire for us to align ourselves with the, this reality that small and hidden and slow is not bad. It's actually good when it means that we get to be with him when we get to live with him. In fact, it's the best thing ever. I want to leave you with a couple of instructions. As community groups, uh, we, we just sent you guys some reminders that you could be slowing down during the summer, so enjoy the summer, slow down, maybe meet less frequently. You guys saw that. If you're in a group, you saw that. But look for some slow and hidden kingdom opportunities. I'm going to let you kind of Figure out what that means in your life. And then reserve 30 minutes to pray for our church, our city, and our world. I'm going to pray now and we'll respond to God together. God, we just acknowledge your presence here. That you are at work, even if it might be hidden in some ways at certain times that even as we gather here together with your people to meet with you, you are at work. And so we invite you to have your way with us now as we respond to you. Move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.